This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playing your character hook proactively. Our top movies of 2020. And the case of the disappearing magician. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm. So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh, yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the giant breathing purple spider hanging from the ceiling, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into... Uh, hold on, Robin, there's a spider on the ceiling. Uh-oh, that's deuced peculiar. It is. It's freaking weird, Robin. That's what it is. It's freaking weird. Because we are talking about the... What is uh, the kicker? The, the, the starting gun? The lit match? The beginning of the Mission Impossible episode? Of the Yellow King, which is the deuced peculiar thing slash freaking weird moment. But of course, it can be genericized to any game of uh, weirdness, horror, or the occult in the actual world. Because something. Right, or in fact, there's lots of uh, non occult games, uh, Feng Shui for one, mm-hmm. where you're also asked to provide a bit of backstory slash motivation for your character when you when you play. And that one is the melodramatic hook. And of course, it's not unique to games that I've designed. It's a relatively common thing mm-hmm. where the, the player is asked to sort of throw a bit into the narrative uh, pot, uh, so to speak. And in, in Vampire, you collaboratively do your whole embrace when you build your character so that all the sordid details of being a vampire are, are brought out. But in this case, we are talking specifically about a deuce peculiar thing, the sort of odd moment that lets you know you are in a game that is designed probably by Robin or me, because it is something uncanny in the real world, such as this entry from Jacques Valley's Diaries. Speaking of another person, I guess, right, Robin? Yeah, so I've been just reading his his 70s diaries, and there's basically a Carta segment on every page. <laughs> That's because he's our, our our beloved Jacques Valley, and we love him. Right. And of course, he is the uh, ufologist slash internet pioneer slash venture capitalist who's a fascinating character in all sorts of different ways. And he just, throughout the diaries, he will drop little weird things that he has heard that are sometimes, I think, more suggestive and interesting than the real story would be. And <laughs> one of them jumped out at me as, oh, this is a this is a freaking weird moment. This is something that your character can have. So I thought it would be good to use this as 
as an example as we look at ways for you, the player, to proactively bring this into play. So the hook is is like this, and of course you would adapt this to the actual time frame of your character, whatever that would be. One rainy day in Montana in 1966, he'd stopped his Jeep to look at the terrain when he heard a sound like a thousand bees. His mind became filled with mechanical sentences. It is futile to look for the source of the sound you perceive. A few hours later, he was seized with nausea, as well as his assistant. They fell into a semi-comatose state that didn't pass until morning. In the afternoon, they saw a lens-shaped object, huge aluminum in color. Since that event, Richard has been inspired to buy a copper and silver mine in the Caribou region. So let's say that you see this in, in a book, decide to incorporate it, make this the basis of your uh, freaking weird moment. And we're going to look at ways that, that you can then introduce that into the story. Because all of these kind of player-generated story hooks, I think, in practice, tend to be more like they're there as little opportunities for the GM to jump in and twiddle things, but we uh, often players don't think to go, oh, well, I should be taking part of the responsibility to bring this into play. And I think there are good reasons for that hesitancy. Uh, for example, you may be concerned that you're going to buffalo the whole scenario. If you suddenly, you know, you're investigating a series of weird doll sightings in Connecticut and you're like, oh, well, I have to get in a helicopter and go check out my copper and silver mine in the caribou region. You are not accepting the premise, you're using that, you're then introducing another roadblock that the poor players and other GM have to deal with. And I think people are so hesitant to do that, that they're also reluctant to introduce the little bits and pieces that do make that shine and do make your contribution bigger than anyone was expecting, you know, so that everybody is adding a little bit and the whole is bigger than the, the sum of the parts as we aspire to in role playing. I think another reason that you might be hesitant to, you know, to play with your backstory that way is that you worry that you are not just big footing an individual scenario, but that you might be spoiling or getting otherwise athwart the GM's plans because yeah, I mean, the GM knows about this, but you're like, well, now I've told them the details if I go ahead and make up more details, then I'm I'm wrecking whatever Deirdre plans when she's going to bring my character into what is quite obviously, by the way, sidebar, Amigo sighting in Montana. So I don't want to touch that because that's the nugget of a scenario that Deirdre has bubbling away in her clever head. And speaking as uh, Deirdre, as the GM, often... I am delighted to have players have their backstory. And then I'm also delighted if they suggest things. And in my fall of Delta green game, uh, one of the players backstories began one way. And because players generally do this, but this player, John is particularly good at this accelerate the degree to which they are screwed by their own backstory. And so something that began as uh, seeing a, a mythos document that he shouldn't have seen in a, KGB officer's desk has now become a full-fledged abduction episode. And every time the player runs into something that he thinks might remind him of his abduction episode, he says, does this remind me of that night in East Berlin? And then I say, 
why, yes, it does. And we feed more details into the mix about this abduction episode, which, by the way, he has never gotten back to investigating. And at this rate, may never get back to investigating. But we're building this degree of, of, of backstory out. And even if he went to Berlin, what that does, because, first of all, it's a subjective memory, as would be this freaking weird moment about the the bees and the and the silvery uh object the subjective nature of it makes it almost unscrewable because they can remember anything and then when they have the adventure it turns out oh that was alien hypnosis that was the Migo messing with you that was a screen memory the owls never existed whatever it is and that becomes then part of the mystery to untangle and then the the fictive Deirdre or the actual me are always happy to have more data and more information to play with. And even if we never go to Montana to investigate that mine, we've always got that memory and you can always throw in a mechanical voice that sounds like a thousand bees, or you can throw in a, a huge aluminum lens object that just floats overhead, or you can read about a mysterious forest fire in Montana and you can say, did that did that get to my mind? It's like, oh, no, it just got to that outbuilding on the outskirts of your mind that you've never really uh, looked at. And, uh, you know, there was old oh, there on there on the property, you know, when you bought it. And now there's, you know, oh, good. And you can either use that as a as a hook to get in or you can use it as evidence that the world is indeed. And this is so important in these kinds of games larger than the uh, scenario at the table. And if every player has one of these, by definition, the world is, you know, four to six times larger than the scenario at the table because you've got four to six other examples of deuced peculiar things that have already happened in that world it's not just oh look at that this wild magician is boiling people down to make magic candles there's also whatever else weird thing was happening in my absinthe soaked memory back in uh you know a couple of years ago right right and so uh now that we've reassured you that both ken and deirdre and your gm all want you to do this Mm -hmm. the question is how to start doing it right and so uh one way is to just Look for little moments where you're asked to bring in, uh, you know, just, well, what are you doing today? Or what were you uh, up to before the meeting? Or, you know, when the GM described the moments of downtime, you can bring in something that relates to your uh, freaking weird moments. So in this case, while I'm just studying my survey maps of my copper and silver mine in the Caribou region, or I'm just on the phone to my... A mining engineer that I'm trying to hire or, you know, again, supply the details for whatever your example is so that you are just sort of planting the idea, not only in the uh, GM's mind that this is still an active part of your character, but also plant it in the other players' minds because it may indeed be something that they might want to riff off of or to build their own weird moments into. So uh, another player might might hear you doing that and say, oh, well, Hmm, when I was abducted, I smelt a coppery smell in the air and it was kind of cold and there was a long drive with a bag over my head out to wherever it was. Was I possibly held in Jake's copper and silver mine and before he owned it? And what, what other strange series of coincidences is perhaps binding us all together so that when you're doing this, you're also providing an example to all the other players of having your ball, having material to bring and throw into the the ring. 
Yeah, or for example, during the game, there can be a mysterious uh, sound, as happens in many games, and before going to investigate, Jake can stop and just say mechanically, it is futile to look for the source of the sound you perceive. And then the other player's like, what's going on, Jake? Uh, what do you mean, what's going on? And then that, again, it reminds the GM, we've still got this hook. It gives Jake a cool character moment that's freaky and weird, but does not actually endanger Jake at the table. You know, his, his character is not, you know, uh, you know, flinging themselves into a pit or anything. They're just freakishly be sounding briefly. And then that gives, you know, so much more depth, uh, to a moment because as you say, it ties not just Jake outside to this other event, but it ties all the players into experiencing this weird thing. The another thing that you can do to draw your thing in is also to ask proactive questions. Um, and this is something that uh, my player John often does. And so when, you know, you're out at the, the tiny doll factory in Connecticut and you're, you're looking around, maybe uh, there's a machinery going and you say, does the machinery sound like a thousand bees? Question mark. Or does the smell of the doll plastic, uh, remind me of, uh, the nausea that I felt in Montana? Is there a common sense memory that's coming back? And you, you offer the GM a way to hook the present story into your weird event and to paint them as part of a tapestry. And maybe the answer is no, it just smells like horrible doll plastic, but the GM may say, well, it doesn't smell just like it, but it has the same quality of, of blood heat that you remember from that. And then that gives the GM a new detail to riff and it gives Jake more information about their backstory. Another thing you can do is when you are gathering information, particularly if you're consulting an expert or uh, explaining why you know something, you can bring in the, uh, the detail. So presumably uh, you have purchase some sort of science or technology ability that represents your new found mining expertise. And so when you see a clue of a geological nature, you go, oh, well, I I didn't used to know anything about this, but uh, now that I own a copper and silver mine in the Caribou region, what can I tell about uh, this peculiar rock face? And so, uh, again, that gives the GM the opportunity to either go, well, this uh, also is a very similar copper deposit and then hook you into the story or go, well, this is a, a different deposit than you're familiar with, but it's one you learned about in uh, in uh, that mining class you took. And so, again, you're bringing that in. Or uh, sometimes when you there's someone that you need to draw on, you know, let's say you're you're near your mine and you uh, need to have a, uh, somebody guard your cars while you all go down into the sub-basement of the doll factory. Then, well, can I get, uh, you know, Pete and Slim? with the security guards at the mine to come out and uh, and keep an eye on the car for us. So you can look for ways to kind of leverage uh, little advantages that are not overweening, right? It's not like you're uh, like Pete and Slim are bringing a helicopter and a bazooka uh, because that's what preparedness is for. Right. But there <laughs> you are showing that this has changed you and is a big part of your identity and allows you to draw in little uh, details. And particularly if it's something that will move the story along. For example, if Deirdre is getting pretty vexed because all the players have spent 20 minutes figuring out how to guard the car when it's like, <laughs> no, just get to, get to the, you know, she'll be happy to let Pete and Slim come out and, right. and help take care of that for you. Although admittedly, my response as the GM to that is on a new moon. Really? Okay. <laughs> but you know, Slim is worried about those prowlers. So whatever though, 
He's happy to guard your car. Yeah. And then also you've got um, that assistant who's mentioned in the story. So you can say, obviously, I can't get back to Montana to see if this uh, weird aluminum UFO that we just saw in Florida reappeared. But I'm going to call my assistant back at the mine and find out what what she knows if if she's seen the same thing. And then the GM says, oh, yes, the the aluminum object appeared over uh, Montana 25 minutes ago. Or whatever. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's a very fast object. And then you have another uh, example of, of something strange going on. You can, you can always pull little bits out of it, either as you say, for advantage or just to make the experience more weird and surreal for everyone, which is in theory, the whole point of play, right? Right. It's also something that you can sometimes bring in when you're talking to other characters that you're trying to get information out of. So it's like, well, I know you're concerned about this strange sighting but let let me tell you i had this thing happen to me where i heard the sound of a a thousand mechanical bees and i was nauseous but look at me now everything's fine so don't worry we got this look at me i'm prosperous from my copper and silver mine in the caribou regions pan out exactly yeah so you can have that as a way of sort of relating to other characters or you can you can throw in questions when you're talking to an expert you know once you get the information you need for the scenario it's like and by the way, has there been any stories of people hearing mechanical voices in their head? And then the expert might say, well, it's completely unrelated. But a couple of years ago, I did talk to uh, this uh, person who uh, then went on to buy a gypsum mine uh, nearby. And uh, that can be a little uh, way that you can, you know, hint to your GM that you wouldn't mind some more uh, breadcrumbs that lead you toward the uh, adventure idea that you've uh, put into the mix. Well, once we're making breadcrumbs, Robin, we're either leaving a trail to another hut or we're getting ready to start the food hut. And I think it's the former. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21. That's CROWN21 to save... 15%. 15%. At PelgranePress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. It's time once more to wend our way into the cinema hut, where we'll sit down in the plush stadium chairs. The cinema is still pretty empty at this point, but it's time for us to take our annual, and in this case, a much-delayed look at our favorite films of the past year. I am informed that the past year was called 2020. It was a (laughs) peculiar year for film distribution and exhibition, to say the least. Typically, we time this segment to drop just before the Oscars. Because of the timing of our uh, Horror Essential series, uh, this will drop for you after the Oscars. So there are things on this list uh, for each of us that may be up, but we don't know if they've won and you do. So reality is swirling like a vortex. 
And I guess the other housekeeping note is uh, that, uh, at least in my case, I still didn't, even though we had extra time, uh, see every single film that I wanted to see that could possibly show up on the list. So if you're waiting for me to mention uh, The Sound of Metal or Tenet, either of those could wind up on my list had I seen them. But due to vagaries, I have not. Are there other films that you want to inform people ahead of time that you haven't seen yet, Ken? Yes, I would like to especially say that I am morally certain, given my fondness for Sofia Coppola films and Bill Murray, that I suspect On the Rocks would have made, if not my list, made a very good run at the list. Also, we were not able to go see Minari, which is in theaters now, and I suspect would have also been excellent. And then I just... Uh, goofed around and didn't get time to see Sound of Metal either. So um, I'll bet we both missed Sound of Metal for reasons, for vagaries, Robin. That's what yeah, it was. Vagaries. The yeah. Vagaries are real, people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ken, do you want to uh, lead off with your uh, number 10 film of 2020? Okay. Um, I guess I'll mention that in 2020, I managed to see almost 50 movies from 2020, which is not at all terrible. It's below my average, obviously, for a year. But so it's not quite nothing but of those 50 movies of those 49 movies only one was a western and i'm glad that it was as good as it was because otherwise i would have had to break my string but in at number 10 is brazilian french co-production bacurau bacurau is um a weird western i guess is how it is described but it is also a social science fiction film in all the senses of that term and sort of one of those experimental films in the sense that it doesn't have a protagonist. It has a bunch of characters, all of whom show up, some of whom emerge, and the story is sort of built out of their actions, although eventually a a narrative is imposed from without because it's a movie about imperialism and how imperialism is, guess what, bad So we have an anti-imperialist Western and a social sci-fi film shot in the traditions, I want to say, of sort of uh, social realism in Brazil's outback. So it's quite a piece. Lots of uh, bits going on. Udo Kier is, uh, and Sonia Braga, I think, are the actors in it that people would recognize. Udo makes his own gravy, as always, as the villain. And Sonia Braga is maybe the local matriarch, maybe the local witch. We don't know. Baccarat is a town with a lot of stuff going on in it. And uh, the movie, likewise, has a lot of stuff going on in it. And it's, uh, frankly, surely beautiful. Uh, like all Westerns, it's also about the countryside that it takes place in. That very much comes through in the, in the, in the filming. I really admired it. I thought it was a terrific movie. It's not just there as affirmative action for Westerns. It has actually earned its spot as number 10. My number 10 is Greyhound, directed by Aaron Schneider based on The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester and adapted uh, into screenplay by its star and producer Tom Hanks. This is a uh, World War II naval battle film and is, I think, interesting in a number of ways, the most obvious of which is the way that it uses modern CGI effects to place you in a naval battle, basically where a wolf pack of uh, U-boats is attacking the supply fleet as it crosses the part of the Atlantic Ocean where there is no air cover. So they have to survive entirely uh, on their own without planes providing uh, backup to help fight the submarines. And so uh, it's this period of time where the Tom Hanks character goes uh, without sleep and is, you know, just sort of trying to hold everything together for the crew and remain together. And I think the other part of it is 
it's very interesting that he has chosen to adapt a novel written not long after the conflict. And you can really see the way in which the character's language and behavior and the etiquette of being on board a ship and the kind of rituals of respect are not how someone would write them if they were just writing from scratch. They would be full of anachronisms and different social attitudes. And it really makes you feel that it is not just recreating the battle, but recreating the social mores of of the time. And uh, Hanks, after a little period of uh, going off and doing some kind of hammy character work, uh, has made a couple of films this year where he's going back to being a movie star and doing minimalistic, uh, stoic performances. Uh, the other one is News of the World, which does not quite make my list, but uh, Greyhound uh, definitely did at slot number 10. Ken, you're number nine. My number nine, I guess I should say that Greyhound was only on Apple TV, which I don't have. If it had been in the theaters, I know I would have seen it. So there we are. My number nine is uh, the documentary Fireball Visitors from Darker Worlds by Werner Herzog, in which Werner Herzog and a volcanologist uh, run around the world talking to people who've seen, collected, or studied meteorites. And meteorites act as sort of the the central symbol of the movie, which is about how the divine touches the human. And the movie itself is almost, as I say, a vorticist in that there's a lot of different moments, different moods, different uh, sensations that flash into the film. Werner's uh, Herzogian presence as the narrator obscures that, but it's almost a dozen little documentaries cut together around this one big topic. And although, you know, seeking the divine, you know, outside meteorites is certainly possible. And indeed, he has a Jesuit astronomer towards the end who makes that point. Seeking it with meteorites is uh, as fascinating for us as it must have been for the first, you know, folks to go wandering up to a smoking crater and say, well, that could have killed us. That's an important moment in our lives. It's a terrific documentary, as are virtually all Herzog documentaries. I was happy to get to see it as part of the Chicago Film Festival. It's a, it's a terrific film. Uh, my number nine film, Ken, is Fireball, Visitors from Darker Worlds, directed Ooh. by Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer. Good choice. Yes. <laughs> everything you say about it is uh, correct. It is a, uh, a particularly somehow magical example of what Herzog does in his sort of uh, quasi- or I guess not quasi, but it's full on nature documentary stream. He makes fiction films and documentaries, and he makes several kinds of documentaries. And this belongs to a string of uh, films in which he's sort of exploring the magic of knowledge. And that uh, there's, so this is just apparently, you know, a basic kind of quotidian format that you see all the time on National Geographic and other uh, channels like it. But he uh, infuses it with his sense of wonder, which is not only about things falling from the heavens in this case and the, the giant power of the Chicxulub uh, uh, meteor, for example, but also the people who know things and are interested in things. And he's just as interested in other things about the talking heads and their personalities. And, oh, well, this person is also a leading jazz guitarist. And, oh, here we're going to talk to the astronomer who discovered Oumuamua and uh, chat with him a bit. And uh, uh, he's got this interesting little quality as well. And so he wants to know the people. And uh, he also wants to sort of 
through the human sense of wonder connect to the wonder of, of the universe. So uh, this is much more special and memorable and stays with you in a way that you wouldn't expect from something of the sort. Ken, your number eight. My number eight, moving from uh, disasters from space onto disasters on the ground, is The Outpost, a war film directed by Rod Lurie. It is straight up about the Battle of Kamdesh, which was in Afghanistan. It was one of the largest actual ground combats in that war. It's the story of a insanely poorly situated forward observation base and the cavalry unit that is there towards the tail end of its existence. And uh, the the Battle of Kamdesh is the end of its existence in many ways. The, the film is sort of headed, I guess I want to say, by uh, Scott Eastwood as sort of the, the central character, but there's a lot of other characters. It's, it's sort of like um, Thin Red Line or a lot of other war movies in which it's it's almost an ensemble. You're you're not given one viewpoint character to look at, but um, Scott Eastwood certainly drives the story because his character Clint Romesha, Staff Sergeant uh, Romesha, is the guy who sort of rallies the base to defend against uh, the Taliban insurgents when they attack. It is a straight up war film. There is not an awful lot else going on, but as with all pure genre films, it doesn't need very much else going on because it's just about the thing that it's about and. It's a, it's a well, a re, a, I mean, it's a really well shot battle film. Uh, you always can see, see what's going on. You get a strong sense of the, of the geography, uh, the way that they filmed it. The, all of the established, uh, parts of the combat are in your mind at the moment the combat happens. So the fact that we've got about 45 minutes worth of the battle, uh, at no point are you confused or distracted and, not understanding the stakes on any individual deployment of this, uh, of this small unit. It's, it's kind of a, a terrific example of war film and it, uh, makes none of the mistakes that war films do of trying to be about other things than just the lives of these men and, uh, the stupidity of the person who decided they should risk their lives for this dumb spot in a valley in Afghanistan somewhere. My number eight is The Assistant. Uh, this is written and directed by Kitty Green, it starts Julia Garner. And it is a, a really riveting, low-key movie about complicity and uh, working in an office where your boss is doing shady things with multiple women. And what do you do about it, especially if you're an entry-level assistant who wants to be in the film industry? The two dudes in your office with you are obviously useless, if not counterproductive in, in every way. And a lot of it is just about the feeling of having a job where you feel very alone, where there's, uh, you know, you drive to work, uh, get in the cab early in the morning from your uh, outer borough and uh, drive into the city when it's still quiet and then arrive, you're the first one there. And it's like, well, then you have to unpack all the water bottles and you have to deal with all these menial tasks. And it slowly sort of builds a tension from that sort of basic reality into as the character uh, realizes that something wrong is going on, that the, the question of what do you do in a structure that's not designed to fix this problem, but is designed to Perpetuate. allow the problem to continue. <laughs> and so it's a, a quietly absorbing uh, drama. Garner does an amazing job of uh, being uh, sort of interior and being really fascinating without outwardly doing anything and without having a lot of, you know, it's all realistic dialogue. So there's no uh, opportunity for big moments. This is not a big preachy social uh, drama movie where the character gives a big speech at the end. Uh, it's a, it's in the reality of that. And um, Matthew McFadden gives a really brilliant one of those one scene 
standout performances where his character traces an entire arc. And he's the HR guy that she eventually winds up going to. And uh, you can maybe guess what the beginning of that arc is, <laughs> yep. what the end of that arc is. So it's a, a fascinating, absorbing, small-scale, super-focused, realist movie about how complicity works. My number seven, Robin, is The Wolf of Snow Hollow, written, directed by, and starring Jim Cummings. It is perhaps a werewolf movie. It is absolutely a, a movie about Officer John Marshall, Jim Cummings' character, who has rage issues. And so the foregrounding of the uh, werewolf from outside to inside, it's made explicit basically right at the beginning. And as you watch the film, you recognize that none of the characters are the sort of standard character that you would expect. No decision that is made during the film is the decision you would expect. There's a lot of uh, stuff going on in terms of narrative and misdirection. So it, it functions as a, a tight little uh, werewolf hunt movie. And then it also, of course, features the great Robert Forster in his final performance as Cummings's uh, father and the current sheriff of the town. The performance that he gives and the fragility and humanity and value that his character represents are so completely in tune and so completely important to the structure of the film that if it had been written worse or had been played by a lesser actor than Robert Forster, I think the whole movie would have come apart and everything that you, when you watch the movie, you think, well, I don't know about, uh, about this bit when you sort of refract it through Forster's performance and through that character, you recognize what's going on. The cinematography is fantastic. It's uh, full of like sort of, uh, weird stark angles as well as close-ups on human faces going through some fairly unimaginable uh, emotional contortions as well as you know werewolf attacks it's got a, a naturalistic feel despite the the, the werewolf uh, subject matter and it's uh, just it, it's surprising throughout at, at no point are you settling in and thinking well this is a good old-fashioned popcorn munching werewolf movie this is it's it's bigger and better than that in every respect so uh, kudos to Jim Cummings, who is obviously a guy to watch. He made my number eight or my number seven, rather. Uh, my number seven is, uh, I think this is not my number one movie, but it's maybe the number one movie we both needed at this point, uh, in the, uh, pandemic. And that's Palm Springs, uh, directed by, um, Max Barrocow with a screenplay by Andy Ciara. And it is very upfront about being yet another Groundhog Day a variation, but it's just one that delivers on every level in terms of being fun and clever. And the premise basically is that uh, Andy Sandberg is trapped waking up every day on the same day uh, at a wedding party at a desert resort. And not long uh, into his long sojourn, uh, repeating the same day endlessly, he accidentally drags another wedding guest played by Kristen Milioti into his repeat cycle. So now there's two people alone in this eternally repeating universe. Or, or wait a minute, there's a third one. There's also his nemesis, J.K. Simmons, who shows up not every day, but every few days to try to kill him. <laughs> and it's surprising and warm and has a lot more to say about relationships than the relationship you see in Groundhog Day. The two leads are uh, as uh, charming and have as much chemistry with each other as you would want uh, in any kind of romantic comedy. And it even takes the timey-wimey time travel physics seriously enough that we can, you know, count this as a uh, as a film of the fantastic 
and not just a romantic comedy. So if you just want a lovely, well done, uh, fun, a rewarding, entertaining film, uh, check out Palm Springs. And in a harbinger of the destruction of cinema as a art form, it was only on Hulu, a streaming service that I do not have. My number six film is Tommaso, uh, Abel Ferrara's latest, a semi-autobiographical, and I think people are being generous when they say semi, a uh, film about a recovering addict who is a New York film director who has fled to Rome to get away from that uh, milieu. Uh, the director in this one, Tommaso, is played by Willem Dafoe. It is really a Willem Dafoe showcase. It is about him as a physical actor. It's about him as a... Uh, classical actor. It's about him as a method actor and it's about him as an imp improvisatory force. It's all about uh, Tommaso, about his internal war within himself between the bad parts of himself, which include not just his addiction, but his transference of that addiction to rage and jealousy and suspicion. It is also about the noble parts of his life and the parts that he's trying to build up. And as uh, Ferrara believes, there is no closure. Uh, if you are an addict and uh, Ferrara is now, I believe, uh, Buddhist, but was, of course, brought up Catholic and his filming sensibilities are still very Catholic. And this film is very Catholic. Um, there's no closure there either. You're always in a state of struggle and that struggle continues through the film. It's super personal. It's a gorgeous walk around Rome movie as well. And it is just a showcase for everything Willem Dafoe can do. He's great as a character actor. He's great as a villain and he's unmissable as a central figure, a protagonist. Everything in the movie is, is Tommaso. It's, it's his viewpoint. It's what's happening to him. Um, and it's, it's a deep dive into that, uh, particularly tortured soul that he probably shares with Abel Ferrara. So a, a terrific movie, not a fast paced movie by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly one to watch if you like watching Willem Dafoe act. Yes. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, checking that out. Uh, the director of Bad Lieutenant is only going to get so Buddhist. Yeah, exactly. At some point, you know, there's uh, areas where Buddha just can't reach. <laughs> My number six is The Five Bloods, directed by Spike Lee, written by uh, Lee with Danny Bilson, Paul DeMeo, Kevin Wilmot. It is his uh, Vietnam film. It is an interesting addition to the cycle because it's long enough in time that we can now see a veteran's return to modern Vietnam and uh, deal with their experience movie. And uh, the ensemble cast uh, is really, uh, you know, top notch in every way. Uh, has uh, Delroy Lindo does an amazing standout performance. Chadwick Boseman in uh, very much sort of a featured role as their uh, kind of magical sergeant who didn't make it and is seen in uh, flashback sequences. Clark Peters and Isaiah Whitlock from The, the Wire. And Lee, because he breaks reality in several really fascinating ways is able to just dispense with the idea of the, having to have younger actors play the characters in the uh, 70s sequences. He just has them play it. And because he's doing other things like having these polemical drop-ins that provide information and commentary, these sort of slides that drop in that I would describe them as an alienating effect, except they're a deepening effect. They are, again, I think illustrates his kind of mastery of the form that he can break reality and then get you right back into it again. Uh, one person uh, in an interview said, well, how did you have the bravery to 
have them play the two different ages and just be the same actors. And you just basically like, well, I have been doing this for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Spike Lee has been doing this for a while, and it's great to see him marshal all of his cinematic powers uh, in something that is, uh, you know, still uh, really in- innovative and and hard hitting. And uh, I was very excited to uh, to see that. Yeah, that uh, The Five Bloods is my number twelve movie. Uh, not because of anything wrong with The Five Bloods, but because I just went on a binge over the last couple of days and watched a bunch of 2020 movies and something had to give Delroy Linda was robbed of an Oscar nomination. I will say that. And I will also say that spike has with this and with black Klansman, he has taken his tendency to didacticism and he has tuned it to the art instead of against the art of the films that he's making. And um, while I think I prefer the sort of more naturalistic mid period spike this late, I'm running out of time. So I have to hit you in the head. Spike is remarkable in the ability to uh, make a movie like this or Chirac or Black Klansman and still have it fully succeed. Big ups to The Five Bloods. Terrific movie. Just I happened to see three better movies over the weekend. So there we are. Well, it's time for us to uh, head out to the lobby to refresh our popcorn, but we'll be back after this exciting commercial message to resume. The best of Askfageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep us afloat now that we've bought a copper and silver mine in the Caribou region by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Steve Sigety, Tristan Knight, Roger Edge, Lee Candelino, and Luke Steyer. We're settling back into the center seat, center aisle of the Cinema Hut for our best of 2020. As mentioned previously, the vagaries of pandemic year, the steady destruction of the theatrical experience by everyone involved, and uh, just the chances that happen mean that our top tens are a little less aligned, I think, this year than they normally are, uh, because there's different streaming services that Robin has or that I have or different times that we got out, different things at different festivals. But that's just the way things rolled in the year 2020. As Robin says, that's the year that they called it. We don't know what it actually was. Anyways, my number five is a comedy. And I think in the same spirit that you loved Palm Springs, I love this movie. The degree to which I wanted to watch a movie that wasn't about uh, a disaster, but was 
hilarious and clever and interesting and beautiful made me love this. Uh, also, comedies always get a kick in the face from the Oscars. That won't happen here. Straight Up is written, produced, and directed, uh, a theme, I guess, for me this year, by James Sweeney. He stars in the film with Kate Findlay. He plays a guy with issues, lots of issues, OCD among them. He's gay, but he doesn't like touching people or physical intimacy of any kind. And so he decides he's going to prove that he's straight by dating Katie Findlay, who is only by comparison to James Sweeney's character, normal. Um, Todd and Rory are obviously tributes to all romantic comedy characters. They are written in that way. Sweeney's dialogue is rapid fire. It's uh, almost screwball at some points. There's some Tarantino influence, but it's all very sweet. It's affirming. It's about life and trying to find your own way through the minefield of relationships and sexuality and identity and all the other stuff that's going on in the world. It's just a a beautifully written, beautifully clever, super interesting and funny as hell uh, romantic comedy. Again, Sweeney is obviously a a, a filmmaker to watch. There's a a sort of a, a an Adderall Whit Stillman uh, quality to his to his filmmaking, and I I love that. Um, and I hope that uh, that Sweeney makes a million more movies just like this one. So straight up, my number five. My number five is Let Them All Talk, uh, Steven Soderbergh, uh, with a screenplay by uh, Deborah Eisenberg, although only one scene is conventionally written. The rest are improvised frameworks for uh, Meryl Streep, Diane Waste, and Candace Bergen. Streep plays a, a prestigious, best-selling literary author, and uh, Weist and Bergen are her college friends, who she's somewhat estranged with. She uh, gets an opportunity to sail on the Queen Mary 2 across the pond to a literary event and uh, has them along with some sort of purpose in mind that they're not quite exactly sure of. She also has her uh, nephew in tow and her new young ambitious editor sneaks onto the uh, agenda as well. And uh, it is improvised, as I said, it is deceptively light until it isn't. And so unlike a lot of improvised films, it does have somewhere to go and an ultimate reason uh, to go there. In the meantime, you it's just sort of a fun hangout movie where you get to be in the QE2 with these actors and characters. And interestingly, there is always an avenue of suspense. There's multiple questions that you want to see resolved throughout from, you know, is uh, Candace Bergen going to get her emotional reckoning uh, with Meryl Streep? Is the nephew going to get busted for being in collusion with the editor? Uh, so there's always uh, it's not just a meandering talk fest, but there's always something that you want answered out of these scenes. Uh, uh, Daniel Algrunt, who is a, a director, appears as a thriller writer, sort of a James Patterson sort of figure. And I thought he was a really a realistically drawn, successful commercial writer. Also, in a nice little switch, he's a sweet guy and a wise person. And mm -hmm. the scene in which Streep subtly condescends to him because he's able to to plot and is prolific i think is uh it, there's an extra little kick in there for anyone who knows the world of uh, writers and writing mm. but it's one of these films where you know it seems a little slight especially in comparison perhaps to some of his other uh, bigger films but it's one that uh, has sort of stuck in my memory and risen in my estimation since i saw it Right now, it's number 16 on my list. I absolutely believe that it could rise in my estimation because I felt just unimaginable joy while watching that movie. 
just, you know, even lesser Soderbergh is so much more delightful than almost any other director. And if joy was the only qualifier, it would be on my list with a bullet. I think Diane Weist especially is slept on by a lot of people. Obviously everyone loves Meryl Streep and yes, she's amazing. Candace Bergen is terrific. And by being given sort of the antagonist has a meteor part to play, but Diane Weist is so good throughout this whole movie. And she's generally just squandered by directors. Uh, it's, it's a joy to see, a real three-handed actors duel going on, plus the sort of the joy of Soderbergh shooting things in that guerrilla style that he loves to do now. It's a, it's a beautiful movie because, as you say, it's sort of improv and slight. I think that's probably why it is not higher up on my list, but man, was it a joy to watch. It was so great. My number four movie is uh, also about joy, but it's also about uh, despair and distress and confusion and midlife crisis because it's from Denmark. It's Another Round by Thomas Vinterberg, uh, starring Mads Mikkelsen and a very able cast of uh, sidekicks and buddies who play the four teachers at a Danish high school who are all suffering basic midlife crises of one sort or another. And... In an effort to distract themselves from this, they decide to test the theory by real-life philosopher Finn Scarterud that says that mankind, humanity generally, suffers from a blood alcohol deficit and everyone should be two drinks in at all times. And they decide to test this by basically day drinking at work, which, remember their high school teachers? Well, there we are. But it's not a uh, Ray Milland Lost Weekend message movie. It's a exploration of alcohol and all the wonderful things that happen. I hesitate to spoil the ending, but I will say that it ends with pure joy. And I will say with pure alcohol joy, not regular people joy. So there is a, a, a lot of great moments in it, as well as being another tour de force, in this case by Mads Mikkelsen, who underplays his character so strongly, uh, playing a, a repressed Danish high school teacher, that the moments when he does open up in any direction are uh, uh, like lightning flashes on the horizon. They're, they're dramatic and beautiful and compelling. And we're reminded that by and large, Actors are better than the scripts they are given. And Mads Mikkelsen, when he gets to uh, really play a, a role, play a human being, is just amazing. And uh, another round is uh, the result. My number four film is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. This is directed by George C. Wolfe. It is adapted from the classic August Wilson play, a bedrock of uh, the late century theatrical repertoire uh, by a writer named Ruben San Diego Hudson. And it stars Viola Davis. Uh, in the title role as the uh, a blues singer who's coming up to uh, Chicago for a recording session and uh, is a uh, powerhouse of a person who's learned to navigate her way through a white world with utter uh, power and intransigence and uh, a sideman played by uh, Chadwick Boseman who uh, has is uh, full of ambition and perhaps a sort of tragic uh, hubris that uh, might uh, lead to something. Glenn Turman, also a, a character actor who's been around, uh, turning in uh, great performances uh, forever, gets a really great spotlight role in this. Just doing this play well means <laughs> you've done a great film. Uh, yeah. But uh, Wolf, I think, does a great job of illustrating how the way that you open up a play is not by changing the locations of the scenes and putting them on more sets or trying to make it more visual, but rather by 
prowling around with the camera and uh, both getting in the faces and getting out of the way of uh, the acting. And it's a really brilliant, subtle job of doing something which is not impossible, but failed at nine times out of 10, which is making a film version of a stage play that is just as alive and thrilling as seeing a great version of it in a theater seat. It's gotten a lot of attention and notice, but I think maybe not quite enough just because it is too, you know, prestigious and high cultural. And uh, I think people are not checking it out because they think maybe it's not for them, but it's absolutely a uh, a riveting uh, version of a, a great play with uh, more than two great performances. Those vagaries again, Robin, that's what prevented me from seeing Ma Rainey, but it is definitely on my list to catch in the next upcoming bit. My number three is uh, thanks to my penchant for putting films in the year that I see them, as opposed to some other random year uh, chosen by people. Uh, this 2020 film, which is probably going to be on your list next year, Robin, is Night of the Kings. <laughs> I knew where you were going with this. Yep. Uh, an Ivoirian prison fantasy medieval storytelling film directed by Philippe Lacote. Uh, it is set in the Macca prison, which is apparently a notorious hell spot in Cote d'Ivoire. And it is about a new prisoner who is brought in and the dying king of the prison, uh, Dangoro Blackbeard, realizes that he can put off his own uh, destruction by his rivals by getting the new guy, the new fish, to tell a story during the night of the red moon while conveniently omitting to tell him that if he doesn't get the story told throughout the night of the red moon, he will die and the bloodlust of the prisoners will be sated for a bit. Yes, and the storyteller never finishes. No, That's no, he part. never finishes. It's... It's a, it's a, he finishes, there is a finish, there, there is an ending, but the, the, but the film itself sort of joins the macrocosm and the microcosm in a very exciting, convincing, breathtaking, surprising way. And I would hesitate to, to spoil it, but it is a, I mean, it's just a, a filmmaking treat. First of all, the, the way that the, the, the visualizations of the story, both acted out by the prisoners and shown in sort of a fantastical uh, scenery play onto each other that they all come off these uh, this reel of desperate literally <laughs> improvisation by the new guy it's just compelling uh, storytelling and again that's what films ought to be is compelling storytelling this is a compelling storytelling about compelling storytelling and set in a uh, you know the the best kind of bottle uh, a prison uh, for film it's a uh, it's just a, a triumph all the way around great movie great performances and superb storytelling in every sense of the word yeah it's not your typical developing world prison film no it has <laughs> a narrative and story and uh, v beautiful visuals and a not magical realist because in the Cote d'Ivoire that's when magical things happen that's just realism my number three is magical in its own way, and it is the uh, aforementioned On the Rocks, uh, directed by Sophia Coffla with Rashida Jones and Bill Murray. Uh, Rashida Jones begins to worry that her husband Marlon Wayans is possibly stepping out on her, and her annoyingly charismatic, well-connected uh, rascal of a dad, played by Bill Murray. So she's Sophia very cleverly written a Bill Murray part for Bill Murray to play. Yes. It's as though she's done that before. As though she's done that before. And indeed, it's a lovely callback to Lost in Translation. And it's uh, all about the relationship and the byplay between Jones and Murray. And it is 
a hangout movie that is uh, better than you would think it would be, except that you've seen lots of translations, so you know what you can do. And also just the sense of New York and being able to, again, this is one of those films where the pandemic puts, puts a different emotional spin on it. Just being able to see New York being alive was moving in and of itself. But I think the film will stand the test of time uh, absent that context. So Apple plus TV for the win. They've gotten three slots on my top 10. And Ken, here's a, here's a tip for you. You can subscribe to a streaming platform for a month and then unsubscribe. And the thing about Apple Plus in particular is they've got about six things on them, and <laughs> and five of them are great because the other ones are the TV shows uh, Ted Lasso and uh, Dickinson. So I'd recommend uh, – I don't want to do Tim Crick's work for him here, but uh, Apple is definitely something you can dip into and out of and then wait another year and a half till they have some more stuff and dip back in. And uh, for less than the price of a coffee, you can uh, – check up uh, some uh, great things. Ken, your number two. My number two is a movie that I actually braved the pandemic to go see on the IMAX the way God and Christopher Nolan intended it. Tenet, a spy film. I think uh, the, the word spy fi is thrown around a lot. This is almost the only actually spy fi film and that it is a science fiction movie about a high concept that derives, I think, equally from philosophy and from physics about a uh, bunch of villains in the future who are sending things back in time, uh, reverse entropy particles and bullets and people and cars zooming back to mess with the present. And uh, within the present, our uh, hero named uh, known only as the protagonist, John David Washington, is drafted into this war after a typically magnificent Nolan opening. And then we're set off uh, to sort of explore this this new universe uh, through John David Washington's eyes. Uh, Robert Pattinson plays sort of his uh, his guide to the to the new world at, at one point, his British liaison. And uh, it is in every respect. In every respect, it is what you go to see a Christopher Nolan movie for. It is gigantic sound design. It is perfectly machined set pieces. It is beautiful, stark blue Nordic light. It is all of those things. And when you see them in the middle of a pandemic, uh, perhaps you uh, tend to like them even better. I certainly like them even better, but I am sure that I will still love Tenet a decade from now, just as I do uh, the other Nolan masterpieces that have uh, popped up on my lists over the over the years. I, I hesitate to sort of go into it because the the plot is, I, I don't want to say it's 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 um, irrelevant, but it is certainly a, a machine to make the movie make you respond and not a, um, a a mystery novel to be read. Let's put it that way. My number two is the aforementioned Another Round, directed by Thomas Vinterberg, written by Vinterberg and Tobias Lindholm. Uh, Ken, you've already described the premise, so I can just uh, quickly affirm uh, everything that you've said. It's one of those films where once you see the setup, which as just to remind people is that four high school teachers uh, have a very calculated uh, midlife crisis by deciding to conduct an experiment to see what happens when you remain mildly drunk all of the time. When you hear that premise, you go, oh, well, I know where this is going. And it sort of goes there, but then also it doesn't. It goes beyond that. And speaking of transcendent special effects, Moss Mickelson is himself, especially in the final scene that neither of us is spoiling, <laughs> a magnificent special effect that uh, brings a uh, moment of uh, transcendence 
uh, to the uh, end of this film. Uh, when you reviewed this for our text feature, Ken Robin Consume Media, you introduced me to Ken to a note of cosmic horror when you said that there's inevitably going to be an American remake. Well, and you know there is. Yes, that's that's <laughs> why it's terrifying. And uh, yes, it will be terrible. And it will uh, look at all the things that this does and go, well, what if we do a more straightforward, moralistic version of this and neither of us will go anywhere near it. Yeah. It, it'll be terrible. Just avoid it. Watch the Danish one again. That's, that's going to be our advice. It's still our advice. You surprised me, Ken, because I thought Tenet was going to come in at number one. Tenet so, is not number one. So what is your number one film? My number one film is the other pinnacle that I saw in 2020. Careless Crime by Iranian director Sharam Mokri. It, was a movie that I saw at the Chicago Film Festival, which is to say I saw it at home on my TV. And it is a movie about going to the movies. It is a movie about four men who are uh, recruited or decide to burn down a movie theater. And this fire recalls a, a catastrophic famous fire at the Cinema Rex in Abaddon, Iran, which was set on fire in 1978 and killed 420 people. It was a giant disaster, a, a big nail in the coffin of the Shah. It, it's a central element in Iranian film history. And so Mokri is looking at that event and he is drawing parallels between the present and the past. And then as the movie continues, the spiral gets tighter and tighter until you realize the parallels are getting ever more exact. I hesitate to spoil it, although I don't think it's a movie that can be spoiled any more than, you know, um, the touch of evil could be spoiled by giving away the surprise ending. Uh, it is a, a masterpiece of tension. The sound design is amazing. It, it's weird and off-putting in all the right ways and places. The cinematography subtly shifts, but remains good the whole, whole way. But once you recognize what's happening as the eras are, are blending, you see what's happening with the film. Uh, at one point, we go so deep into the uh, snail shell that we are watching a film within a film within a film, which is always something to do. So it's structurally just an amazing helix of a movie. And finally, it is a, a beautiful expression of the community and the joy and the importance of seeing movies in a theater. It is all about that and about the, the sort of so very ironically, you were not. Yes, uh, very ironically. And as I was watching the movie, I was, I was saying to myself, this would be such a pinnacle if I were in a theater to watch it. And then I realized that's not really Sharam Mokri's fault that I'm not in a theater watching it. He is possibly the person least to blame for that. So uh, I decided this is a pinnacle film. If I'd seen it in a theater, I would be I would never shut up about it. It is a, a great movie and it is definitely uh, Mokri is a new filmmaker to me, but I intend to search the surface of the earth for a Sharam Mokri uh, retrospective and go watch every one of them because this was such an amazing piece of work. As a thriller, as a film about film, and as a example of taking the Iranian the Iranian new wave and um, adding, oh, I don't know, Robin, a plot and tension. There, there you go. Let's have that. Uh, so it's a it's a terrific piece of film culture as well as a uh, an example of cinema at its finest. Uh, can't say enough good things about Careless Crime, and I want to see it again, and I want to see it in a damn theater, Robin. Well, I can't wait for that to come around. My number one film, I also saw at a film festival, which meant watching it at home on my television. <laughs> and that's another film that certainly would have been enhanced by uh, seeing it on a giant scope screen, and that is Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao, adapted by uh, Zhao from Jessica Bruder's nonfiction book of the same name. I think 
a theme that has run through many of our choices have been the uh, cinematic force of nature actors. Uh, so something anchored by Francis McDormand is unsurprising to see this in the top slot. This is about the real life phenomenon of uh, mostly older folks who just sort of live as mobile nomads, not in uh, sometimes in mobile homes, but sometimes in vans that they've converted and they're not supposed to be living in. And they just uh, move around America uh, looking for work where they can get it and maintaining their uh, freedom and uh, being uh, off the grid, but having a community together where they gather and help each other. Most of the other actors, with the exception of David Strathairn, are non-pros and are often the people who are uh, they're playing versions of themselves. And uh, it is phenomenally difficult to get really evocative, expressive performances from non-actors, and Zhao does that. And it's also difficult to uh, be authentic as a professional actor around non-actors, and uh, McDormand and Strathairn uh, pull that off, countering the level of, or magnifying, I guess, really the social neorealist uh, descriptive nature of the film uh, is its sense of landscape and its visual beauty. And Zhao has a sort of utter control over what's in the frame that you only see from the very top-notch directors, but it's a very subtle control that has a kind of a magical transcendent beauty to it. And it has a an empathy that is uh, often missing in supposedly empathetic social realist movies, that there's a genuine humanistic feeling for those characters as individuals and not just as symbols, as people and not just as uh, sources of uh, sympathy porn. And uh, it uh, takes some risks, including it, it depicts Amazon the way that the uh, people in this world view it as, which is it's a great short-term gig to get. And you, you build your year around going and being a seasonal worker at Amazon. And it's just a uh, beautiful, memorable film that deserves all of the uh, the plaudits that it's uh, that's getting. And even if you don't normally like something that sounds like social realism, this cuts against this in so many ways, while also being that in a way that so many other films fail to do because at heart they're fake or exploitative. It uh, really deserves all of the uh, attention that it's gotten and deserves to be my number one film of the year. And Ken, when we've both given our number ones, it's time for us to flee the Cinema Hut. I think we're going to be out of the Cinema Hut for a good while to come. We're going to yeah. take a little break from that. Maybe we'll be in the walking around outside hut for a while. <laughs> right. So let's go through this commercial and see what hut awaits us at the end of this episode. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. 
a king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF Now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream Planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research, God help them. That's Impossible Landscapes and its companion Static Protocol, both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of Arcdream Publishing. It's time once more to enter... That most ill-defined of huts, the hut that stands on the boundary zone between the weird, the paranormal, the just plain uncategorizable. I just don't know where we are, can't... Oh, but wait. There in the corner, there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're drinking a kombucha. They're slagging on the reptoids as ever. You look out the window, we can see the alien big cat screaming out in the moor. And what he's screaming is, Oleptony! Oleptony hut! And uh, this time around, uh, we are going to look at the disappearance of stage magician and perhaps a cult investigator, Dilamano. And Ken, this story of a magician which uh, comes to a strange and fatal conclusion or lack thereof in 1882, is it safe to say that this story of a stage magician is one in which things are not as they seem? I think that it is probably safe to say that, but given that as far as I was able to tell, Robin, and I tried good and hard to tell, there is nothing about Delamano outside one issue of one magic collector's magazine that is not on the internet. And so everything else on the internet is either a game of whispers from that one article or people trying to sell you Delamano placards and uh, broadsheets and posters and even little souvenir books that he would uh, sell at his shows because Delamato was a popular stage magician who went around and had lots of media in, in his career. So what we know is that he existed <laughs> and that he then stopped existing and that at some point he was in the United States the uh, magazine that I did not see, but the internet uh, generally agrees that his real name was Zell Dreitzen. He was born in Austria around 1830, give or take. According to some sources, his family was wealthy and owned a circus in Austria. I love that they were wealthy circus owners. It's wealthy like they circus were, they owners. They were part of big circus. Big circus. Well, in uh, in Austria, the Gross Zirkus, as it was called, was uh, a very powerful... Uh, no, I have no idea what circus owners in Austria were like. But I'm sure that, you know, Ringling could have bought and sold them. I'll, I'll just say that. Anyhow, he built up his career in Europe and then, as with so many European magicians, came to America. America to uh, fleece the rubes and he toured uh, the states well, in 18 where the rubes are got exactly and there's only so many rubes even in austria um he, he comes uh, to america tours in 1876 at this point dates begin to get blurry and vague but we know that in 1877 he had a whole parcel of handbills printed in america so that he would have them for his shows probably toured in 1878 as well possibly in 1881 
Uh, we don't have, you know, any diaries. We don't have any newspaper articles or anything, or at least I wasn't able to find them. Uh, his ads said that he traveled extensively in the southern and eastern states. But again, now we're believing magicians ads they wrote themselves, which is even <laughs> worse than believing the ads of people who are selling magician memorabilia. As magical claims go, that's kind of modest. That is modest. Well, he also claimed to be a great French magician, which at least one of those is a palpable <laughs> lie. Uh, with a, a Spanish name and an Austrian identity. Anyway, it was a quarter to see Delamano, 35 cents if you wanted a reserved seat. The Wizard of the East, the champion prestidigitur, the ambidextrous comedian, archillusionist and humorist, autocrat of the world of magic. His inimitable, novel, and laughable entertainment was known as Begone Dull Care, which, quite frankly, I would pay a quarter to see Begone Dull Care. I'd pay 35 cents. Yeah, I'd, what the I'd hell? My Get your good seat. seat. Among the things that happened at his show were slights with cards, ribbons, rings, fruit, coins, balls, handkerchiefs. He did clairvoyance. He did mind reading. He had acts called The Bird Cage of Leah, The Mesmerized Cards, The Aerial Suspension, The Witch's Knot, The Great Hindu Box Mystery, The Transformation Stand, The Inexhaustible Bottle, now we're talking, The Miser's Dream, which I assume is slights with coin, uh, The Enchanted Wedding Rings, called Mene Tekel of Farson, so obviously a little Bible uh, there for the, for the Americans, uh, The Enchanted Candle, Apparition rings, the blood writing on the arm, aka the enchanted cross. Yeah, so let's that's put a pin in cool. that one. <laughs> put a pin in the blood writing on your arm. The great East India dagger mystery, the magic omelet. Again, you put that with your inexhaustible bottle, you are good. He just makes you breakfast. It's a really good omelet. Exactly. That, that's the only <laughs> that's, trick. That's be gone, dull care, and enjoy a complimentary breakfast. Yeah, the, the trick is to cook it slow. Exactly. Kick it over the over the length of the time. Well, he was, he was a great French magician, Robin. That's how they cook their omelets there. Um, Muhammad's cane or mesmerism extraordinary, Asin's laundry. And finally, no doubt the big climax, the big end of the show, Egyptian vivisection, which involved cutting a man into pieces. I don't know if that was just the standard box with swords going through or if there was something more fun happening. But when you combine it with blood writing on the arm, there's a certain quality to Delamano. But Ken, did he have a, a lovable sidekick by any chance? He sure did, Robin. You don't just get all those acts. You also get the sight of a magic pig, Dom Pedro, the pig with a human brain that reads, multiplies, subtracts and divides, plays a game of cards, rings a bell, fires a gun, <laughs> tells you what you're thinking of, and many other things that must be seen to be believed. One assumes Dom Pedro has put his trotter down on the magic omelet and says, we are not having magic bacon. Do not make bacon jokes around uh, Dom Pedro because he can fire a gun. Not around Dom Pedro. And finally, an act that he did was the Chinese paradox, and according to his advertising copy, it is asserted by spiritualists to be accompanied through the agency of friends in the invisible world. And now this, and the fact that he was in upstate New York, makes some people say, as far as I can tell with no evidence whatsoever, although again, I have not seen the article in the Yankee Collector, that he became a psychic investigator and was uncovering spiritualist frauds or looking into spiritualist phenomena. I believe this is back projection from Houdini. I feel like 
people have heard about this guy. They know that he's doing spiritualist magic and they think, oh, he must be like Houdini. He's investigating it. Well, I feel like he's doing spiritualist magic because it puts butts in seats. That's just my theory. So you mean his mysterious disappearance in 1882 is not because he was investigating a haunted house? It could have been. For all I know, it, it could have been that he had finally got his box of quarters and wanted to unload the pig on somebody. Who can say? But he does disappear, or at least vanishes from the historical record, in Westerlo, New York, in early autumn 1882. All of these facts are conditional. Allegedly disappears during a lightning storm. This is at least part of legitimate Westerlo, New York area legendary that this happened. So we are at least on a true legend as opposed to a... Uh, a lie made up, although, of course, the legend makers could be reading a lie made up, as happens plenty of times. A legend is just a tea-stained lie. Exactly. Well, this tea-stained lie has a happy ending in that there is a magician named Peter Montecup who is uh, roaming the world in 1987, performing at uh, casinos and, and, and theaters and whatnot, no doubt being a, a show. Probably you would uh, your dull cares would also be gone if you watch Peter Montecup. I'm not going to say he's not a great magician. But in August of 1987, and you can see him tell this story on his website, uh, he gets a call from someone that says, do you buy magic stuff? And he's like, Sure, because he has a little store, or actually a pretty big store, it looked like. The, what, what do you got? He says, well, I've got a magician's trunk that we found in our barn. And he says, all right, I'll come out there in a couple of days. And they're like, oh, no, we're moving today. And if you don't come out, we're going to throw it out. And so he's like, well, I've got a show. I can't skip my show, but I'll be there after my show. And they're like, all right. So he goes out to Westerlo, New York which is near Albany and he sees the people and they, and they show him the barn and they show him this big magician's trunk. And he's like, great, I'll, I'll pay you whatever amount for the trunk. And they say, Oh no, we want the trunk. We need to move. We, you, you're only buying the insides. And he's like, well, I didn't bring a bag. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? So they open the trunk and they look through it and it's full of these handbills and broadsides and copies of Delamano's, a handbook of magic that he would sell at shows. And Montecup says, well, these, th this is probably a, a good find. Were there any tricks in the trunk? And they said, oh yeah, but the kids played with them and lost them and broke them. <laughs> so all of Delamano's <laughs> magic tricks were ruined by farm children. <laughs> and he says, all right. Or well, so that's what, that's what they want us to believe. That's what they want us to believe. And so he says, all right, here's my offer for the contents of the trunk. No trunk. And she says, well, that's pretty low. And he says, well, like you said you're going to throw it away. Th that's the offer. <laughs> and she says, let me ask my husband. And he says, okay, go ask your husband. She says, well, he works the swing shift. And so he's asleep. And so Montecup is like, all right, I have a friend <laughs> in the area who has this a bar. This is a magic trick where you make my time disappear, <laughs> isn't it? Exactly. I have a friend in the area who has a bar. I will go hang out with him. I will see if he has a box that I can borrow. And then I will come back in three hours when your <laughs> husband is awake. So at midnight to buy this magic stuff. So uh, he goes off to the bar. He hangs out, no doubt bitching about this crazy woman in Westerlo uh, to his friend. Uh, his friend uh, enjoys the story, loans him some boxes. No doubt they both drive back out to Westerlo. The woman says, okay, my husband has agreed to the price. They pack up everything, but it's um, uh, pouring down rain by the time they've driven back. And they said, look, it's raining. Can we just leave it in the barn? And she says, if you leave it in the barn, I'm throwing it out. And he's like, ah. So they pack everything up. They race to the car with what they can put, you know, in, you know, under their shirts and whatnot so that it doesn't get uh, destroyed. Put it in the, in their car and drive off with it. A week later, 
He thinks, well, let's see if there's anything going on there. Goes back to that bar, talks to his friend and says, let's go back out to that barn now and see if there's anything that got left there. And he says, oh, we can't. Uh, that night it was struck by lightning and burned down. <laughs> so if Peter Montecup had not been the most preternaturally patient of magicians, we would know literally nothing about Delamano because I think everything that we know comes out of the contents of that box. Well, patience is an important part of learning all of those <laughs> magic tricks. So Exactly. So, we, you know, we talked about Beowulf being lost. I don't know that Delamano's handbills are Beowulf, but we, we are we are this close from Thor, angry god of thunder, having destroyed all evidence of Delamano's existence, as well as possibly vanishing him in early autumn 1882 during a lightning storm where he was or was not locked in his room, was or was not investigating a haunted house, was or was not sleeping in an area barn. Who knows, right? Right. So clearly, if we're going to unfetter ourselves from the documentary record, <laughs> which we almost which have we, to, which we have to, is, I believe, uh, <laughs> part of our job on this show is that uh, clearly he uh, angered some sort of lightning based entity. And uh, whether that was the ghost he was investigating in the haunted house that he supposedly was uh, looking into when he disappeared, or uh, he had perhaps captured a lightning elemental and was looking to recover his lightning elemental that operated his uh his different tricks and stuff uh perhaps uh, that's what the switch to uh, being a, a cult investigator was just a cover for his uh elemental capturing business uh which i guess would make him the antagonist of a scenario and uh you the uh the other investigators would not be of the elemental capturing variety but would be perhaps on the side of the elementals or uh you can make him a heroic player character who's the basis for your late 1800s uh, occult investigator. Because this is one of those cases where the the lack of provable evidence, of course, is just a field for us to wrap about in. Right. I, another possibility, given that he is involved somehow in spiritualists, if only by using their uh, routines as magic tricks, and that he is in upstate New York, and that he is killed by electricity, I feel like we can't rule out that he has stumbled upon the electrical genius created by John Murray Spear, who I think we've talked about previously in this space. We haven't even talked about him. And so if John Murray Spear is building the electrical Messiah and the electrical Messiah, as we suspected, went wandering about the countryside, perhaps the electrical Messiah stumbled on our boy uh, Delamano and uh, wiped him out. Right. Or Delamano was trying to steal the secrets of the electric Messiah because that's that seems like the sort of thing that you could turn into a, a stage performance. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it would fit right in with the many Tekel Ufarsen uh, rings and uh, the, uh, the Egyptian section really well, I would, I would think. So lots of good stuff going on. Right. So this can either be a player character who has the, uh, the power of the blood writing on the arm or, or uh, an antagonist. And so I guess you have to decide uh, whether you're pro or anti lightning elemental or pro or anti uh, electric messiah and uh and go from there now is this uh is, is this game that we think of is this a a victorian adventure game set in the hurly burly of the american stage in the latter half of the 19th century or are we looking at a modern game where peter montecup has unbeknownst to him reawakened the electrical messiah by his dinking around with delamano stuff 
and you are even now uh, being stalked as uh, player characters in the modern era who are frustrated perhaps at the paucity of information about Delamano on the internet and have to go around and, and do the actual on-site digging. Well, of course, you're talking to someone who has a game that is set in multiple time periods, one in 1895 and the other also in the present day. So it would seem to me that if you do this in the Yellow King, 1882 is a little too early, but we can fudge that a bit. And you can have the initial version of that or a uh, a repercussion from that and then uh, have a, a modern sequel. And you can uh, have your uh, magic pig and eat it too. I feel like if we're yellow kinging this, that certainly a Delamano placard promising the Carcosan Tower mystery or something like that would uh, not be amiss to show up in a, a magic supply shop in Aftermath, perhaps. There might be a, a, a yellow sign or two on his handbills. Who can say? Um, he might have uh, done any number of, of things in the same sort of gleeful, culturally appropriative way that he's borrowed from all other kinds of things for his magic. He's picking up on Carcosan magic and then... When he vanishes in 1882, well, he was taken to the Lake of Holly or he fell into Carcosa and uh, maybe he, you know, is trying to emerge through magic that one time someone's going to pull open a, a magic chest and instead of their beautiful assistant, Dom Pedro, the pig with a human brain will appear and make the gateway. Yeah, that's just that the, the, the lightning that hit the barn was just his, his failed attempt to rematerialize. Exactly. And that uh, maybe there will be a lightning storm in, in your ongoing game. And uh, that every time there is lightning and magic omelets, uh, you know that uh, Delamano is attempting to reappear. Uh, well, Ken, I think it's time for you and I to go off and have a couple of magic omelets. But we'll be back a mere seven days from today with more similar stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgame Press. Asphagelm. Art Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast from disappearing in the haunted house of underfunding by joining such taste-making backers as... Andrew Laliberti. Ben Vincent. Chad Ward. Dan Simon. And Neil Dalton. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate the inevitable rise of the cephalopods and subtweet your followers with our latest oceanic design. Here come the reply guys. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff.